tres, cuatro. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Before punk exploded in London, it ruled New York's Lower East Side with its raunchy sounds. The idea that a rock song could be perfectly obnoxious while being enormously fun was kind of a new idea that the dictators pioneered and I think the Ramones carried forward you know, much more efficiently. Today we conclude our series on 1977, the year punk broke, with a look at punk stateside, talking to music writer Ira Robbins. And later in the show, we chat with the indie rock duo She Devils. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later on in the show, we are going to talk to one of our discoveries from the South by Southwest Music Conference, She Devils. But first, we've got punk in 1977. That is the immortal Cretan Hop by the boundlessly influential New York punk band, The Ramones. Greg, I'm smiling. It makes me smile every time I hear it, even after all these years. You're, you're grinning, too. Last week, we kicked off our examination of 1977, the year punk broke. We were revisiting these episodes with a look at punk in the U.K., and how the sound of the music and the attitude in the music world changed. You can find that episode at soundopinions.org. Today, we're going to revisit the other side of the ocean, what was happening in 1977 in New York, which is really where it all started. Punk began to hit the mainstream in a big way, not in terms of sales, but at least in terms of people looking at it. That's right, Jim. And to help us explore New York in 77, We spoke with music journalist Ira Robbins. He was there at the ground floor of this movement, the founder and editor of Trouser Press, a magazine I read religiously back in the day for all my news about what was happening in punk. So I was in the scene when it was happening, and we started our conversation by asking if he felt the music was being appreciated outside of New York. If I could just roll back the clock a little bit, I think what makes 1977 interesting in New York is that there was also a 1975 in New York, because... (laughs) Unlike London, New York had a pretty solid scene in the same genre for a couple of years before anyone took notice of it. You know, whereas London kind of exploded overnight, New York in 1975 had Blondie, the Ramones, Heartbreakers, Talking Heads, Wayne County, the Dictators, Patti Smith, the Shirts, and all these other bands. So that 1975 was pretty much the same as 1977 as far as the New York club scene. overarching sense that any of us that went to those shows had was that this was a scene that was never going to go anywhere. You know, we loved what we had, but it was the same couple of hundred people that went to all the shows. It wasn't growing especially. The bands that got signed got signed to small independent labels, by and large, that, you know, didn't really have high hopes for them. And, you know, with a couple of extraordinary exceptions, proved that to be true. That's fascinating because we look back on it now and we think, oh, it was this great flowering. 
But you're right. I mean, being a punk rocker then, being sort of on the outside, it certainly wasn't widely accepted nationally. But the CBGB's thing, obviously the scene coalesced around the Lower East Side. What else was happening in terms of the club scene there? You know, in terms well, of Maxis had been you know preceded CBs. You mm-hmm. know, and Maxis had kind of the older crowd. You know, the the, the Bowie dolls, Lou Reed, Velvets, kind Warhol, of, yeah, Warhol, yeah. And and Maxis was a really bizarre place. I mean, you know, Springsteen played Maxis, and Bob Marley played Maxis, and right. uh, Patti Smith kind of lived there for a while. You know, but there was also the Club Eighty Two, which was a uh, a lesbian transvestite bar downstairs on uh, I think Second Street, which was a pretty scary place. And you know, you kind of had to take your heterosexual teenaged angst in hand to go there and then there was this this huge place in Queens called Coventry they had two stages and I saw one show there with the dictators on one side and the dolls on the other now this Mm. is all way before 77 now Ira you have a New Yorker's perspective on this because what I think distinguishes 77 is that this is when the rest of America catches on Mm -hmm. these records finally are filtering out to the rest of the country but before we quit the CBGB scene a word about the fashion. When you look at pictures of that club today, people are dressed really casually. Mm-hmm. They look like college students. I mean, you didn't see the spiky haircuts and mohawks you saw in London. No. New York had a couple of different scenes going on at the same time, as every big city does. I mean, when the dolls started, the dolls fell right into the glam rock world. They were the center of an audience that was also going to see Roxy Music and David Bowie and T-Rex. And when we went to those shows, we dressed up like crazy. It wasn't punk rock by any stretch of the imagination. It was glam rock. We all wore stacked heels, and we all wore, you know, like great shirts and, you know, great jackets. By 76, 77, it was much more functional. I mean, it was, you know, CB's was never an event show. You went to see a band you liked. What is CBGB's to you? It's a local club. I live a few blocks away. I come free because I'm privileged, you know? So I come to see my favorite band. Good band, you know, it's an open forum, you know? Well, I think the biggest fashion statement was the Ramones with the, the matching leather jackets and the ripped jeans. I know the guys in Talking Heads and television were like wearing collared shirts and things like that on stage. It wasn't any big deal in terms of a fashion statement, right? No, I mean, I, I, you know, people were really at that moment still trying to be iconoclastic. There really wasn't a fashion to follow. You know, the bands were all different. The lifestyles of the bands were all different. You know, I mean, the television were, you know, sort of pretentious French intellectuals in their heads. You know, whereas the Ramones were, you know, street kids from Queens. I think everyone kind of went their own way for a few minutes. All right, wait a minute. Before we get too nostalgic, let's remember a few things about New York in this period. The city is bankrupt. Crime is rampant. Rats are running up and down the streets of the Lower East Side. There's the Son of Sam killings. All it takes is a blackout, and suddenly New York City is the third world. And there were thousands of others who took to the streets to plunder and to pillage. Over 2,500 looters and vandals arrested during the first eight hours of the blackout. The looters concentrated on small businesses, mostly in the poorer sections of the city, where unemployment and crime are chronically high. How did that atmosphere factor into things? New Yorkers 
There's an expression that some New Yorkers have used. I don't know if it's broadly enough used to actually have entered the vocabulary, but we used to call it a grim smirk. In other words, it was a grimace and a smirk at the same time. Hmm. And it was the understanding that life sucked and it wasn't necessarily going to get better, but so what? Hmm. You know, we'll get through it. And it's kind of a joke anyway. And I think if there's a punk ethos that could be distilled down to a facial tick, it's that. (laughs) And I think that was perfect for 1977. I mean, those bands were saying, it's bad out there. We're going to have some fun. And I don't think it was any deeper than that or any more profound than that. You know, going to First Avenue in the Lower East Side, which is actually where I was born in the 70s, was terrifying. It was like going to CBGB's was like taking your life in your hands as far as, you know, my sheltered little white boy experience was concerned. I went there, you know, gulping, you know, and and hoped I would get home at the end of it. Well, let's go through these records. Now, the Ramones actually had two records come out in 1977, and the debut came out in 76, and it was just mind-blowing to the people who heard mm-hmm. it. I remember when a kid in my dorm in college brought it to us. For two weeks, we played it as a comedy record, and then the, uh, the second <laughs> week, we were like, wait a minute, no, this is, this is really good. And then in 77, they come out with Leave Home and then Rocket to Russia, the third album, the big commercial breakthrough, if you will. But let's mm-hmm. talk about the Ramones a little bit. What was the perception of them in New York City? They were familiar. They were popular. You know, they drew a crowd. I remember the first time I saw them, I hated them. You know, they can't play. And where, where's the minor chord in Warm California Sun? You know, and it's just like all that kind of stuff. And it was basically my old school Eric Clapton is God mindset being insulted by the stripped down basicness of what the Ramones did. I mean, we thought the Ramones were funny, actually. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, to, to your point about thinking they were a comedy act, I mean, we used to make fun of Joey, the way he stood on stage. We used to call him the salamander because he would kind of, sl- you know, kind of wrap <laughs> himself around a mic stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, right. You know, the next time I went to see them, I loved them and never changed that opinion. And those three records, you know, are like the uh, the cornerstone of, a, of an entire generation of music. Yeah. It is hard to separate those four. They are kind of of a piece. Absolutely. You know, but the other thing that I would add to this is that, again, and I I hate to be the prequel guy here, but, you know, the dictators had started several years earlier. The dictator's sensibility of that kind of pop culture garbage, take drugs, have fun, be stupid, puke on the floor... That was there for a couple of years before the Ramones came along. And I have to say that in a small sense, you know, the Ramones felt like they were picking up that cudgel. The idea that a rock song could be perfectly obnoxious Mm. while being enormously fun was kind of a new idea that the dictators pioneered. And I think the Ramones carried forward, you know, much more efficiently. We'll be right back with more of our talk about New York punk in 1977 with music critic and journalist Ira Robbins. Later, we'll talk with the Canadian duo She-Devils. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's the track Friction by Television from their 1977 debut, Marquee Moon. Now, Television was far from the only New York band to release a classic album in 1977, because that year also saw a slew of great records from groups playing CBGBs and similar clubs on New York's Lower East Side. Today, as part of our series on 1977, the year punk broke, we're taking a look at that New York scene. We're joined by music writer Ira Robbins, who covered New York punk for the magazine Trouser Press in 1977. Ira, there were a lot of punk bands in the scene that year, but there were also more diverse acts like Blondie, The Talking Heads, and Television. If the Ramones were the quintessential New York punk band, I think people are still trying to figure out what television did to be part of that scene. I mean, Marquis Moon doesn't really sound like a quote-unquote punk rock record. Not at all. Do you remember what Robert Criscow, the Village Voice editor, uh, wrote about that record, Ira? I do not. He said it sounded like Yes or Genesis. <laughs> and, and, you know, and well, there are certain ways it kind of does. Well, I was horrified when the British press reviewed their first tour and referred to the meandering Grateful Dead guitar solos because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to me, the Grateful Dead has always represented one nadir of American music. I mean, just, you know, an absolute, you can't go past this in horribleness. And <laughs> the idea that a band that I, at the time, thought very highly of and in subsequent years have come to absolutely worship should be compared so wrongly, just completely yeah never made sense to me. Well, Marquis Moon, to my mind, now that I've heard a lot of the live tapes that have surfaced since then of television, it seems fairly constrained compared to what they were like live. I mean, they were a ferocious live band, and Marquis Moon, by comparison, is a fairly constrained record. Was that your experience? Well, I mean, there were two televisions. There was the television with Richard Hell, and then there was the television without Richard Hell. The television with Richard Hell was a falling down, chaotic... I use the word with all due respect, mess. Whereas the television with Fred Smith was a focused, manageable, producible band that made an unbelievably great album. You know, if you listen to the tapes from the Eno demos on through to the album, it's a shocking transition from songs that kind of meander and don't really have any punch and kind of come and go and are all about Tom, they suddenly become this intensely focused group. I mean, you know, sort of when you reach the, you know, the pinnacle of of some of those songs, when the solos just kind of hit their mark and, you know, just the whole thing just explodes. not something they were capable of six months earlier, at mm-hmm. least nothing that they demonstrated capacity for. Mm-hmm. Great album for sure. Ira, we wanted to talk with you because you have that insider New York perspective. In 77, this music was making its way outside of New York for the first time, but you guys had heard these records for several years already. Right. And it's interesting to hear your perception of how these records captured that scene, because what you seem to be saying is that the records were pretty different from what was happening live on stage, right? Well, I think there was a definite discontinuity between who those bands were on stage and who those bands were once they got into a studio with a producer who had an agenda and a record company that had anxieties. And I think the idea that those bands became something different in the studio, I mean, these are, these bands were all 
with a couple of exceptions, were pretty young, mm-hmm. you know, and they were inexperienced. I mean, there was no farm system in those days the way there is now. They hadn't been doing, you know, whatever the indie rock equivalent of mixtapes is, and they hadn't been playing the festivals, and they hadn't developed a following beyond a couple hundred people and James Wolcott and The Voice, maybe. It was weird when, like, the British press would come over and, and really, you know, goon them because it was like the, the perception and the reality were pretty far af- apart. Ira, it seems like we look back on 77 through rose-colored glasses, and to me that is particularly offensive because the punk ideal, if not always the reality, was no illusions, no separation between audience and performer, no rock star attitude. We all are one. Private Dead Boys, the Dead Boys have shown me tonight how rock and roll should be done. How should it be done? With ain't no, no pyrotechnics. No phony showmanship, just pure rock and roll energy, pure gut, pure stamina. All these bands, including the mighty Ramones, however, became just like Aerosmith, these big corporate rock entities. You know, the Ramones traveled in separate buses for the last 20 years of the band. They didn't even talk to each other. Even television cashed in with a reunion tour. So was there ever really this idealistic ethos that we were not going to become the rock stars we hated? I agree with the general principle of what you just stated, but I I wouldn't agree that the Ramones became Aerosmith. I just saw Aerosmith, and they definitely were not the Ramones <laughs> in, in any way, shape, or form. And I don't think television cashed in on the reunion tour. I think television took an opportunity that made sense and made a really good record and toured behind it, You know, which is not the same thing exactly. But yes, there was an ethos. I mean, there was an ethos that made rock stardom not a dirty word. It made pathetic arena stardom a dirty word, you know? I mean, everybody that played in bands had grown up loving rock stars, and they probably, at the time that they were playing on stage at CBGB, still loved certain rock stars. And nobody begrudged the idea of making great music and having lots of people like it. In a very big way, a lot of the bands that came up in the early 70s and the mid-70s were playing at being rock stars. I mean, there was a real sense of like, hey, we can do this too. I mean, DIY wasn't simply eliminating the middleman. It was kind of, let's put on a show. And it had that same air of inconsequence that became lost over the years. But I do think there's an ideal that you're not doing this because you expect anything to come of it. You know, but I think they all wish that Clive Davis would stream in one night and, you know, swan in and <laughs> sign them. Would you sign with a major company? Nah. I mean, yeah, well, it's hard, you know, like, if it people depends. want to hear it, you might as well. So you know, I never got to work like, another day in my life, yeah. It depends on what they say we have to do and what we don't have to do. We're not going to change. If they sign us, great. We ain't going to change for them, you know, no way. They did sign some bands, and you know Seymour Seymour Stein, the head of Sire Records, was the the, the Messiah when he came to CBGBs because he would just like look through those hooded eyes and go, "I like these guys." And two minutes later, you know Lenny Kay would be in the studio with them, or Ed Stasium, or somebody. It wasn't one thing or the other. That that's where my rose-colored glasses get trampled underfoot because it was never one thing. There were bands that had been around for years that were great, like Suicide, that were clearly never going to succeed. There were bands that arrived from completely different places and thought that this was just a quick path to fame and fortune, like the shirts. There were bands that came from other cities and thought it was just a better place to be, like the Dead Boys. Well, you mentioned Suicide, uh, Martin Rev, Alan Vega, this duo, that their first album actually came out that year. 
they were part of that scene and yet it didn't seem part of it. They alienated everybody, it seemed like. What was your experience with that group? They were scary. I mean, if you saw them in a small club, I mean, Alan would, would run out and grab stuff. You know, I mean, he was just pretty intense. But I, I think suicide were were serious. They were dead serious. Yeah, and it didn't seem like they had any prospects at all that this was going to be commercial or they were going to get signed to a big label. I mean, that was another level of intensity. I mean, if you want to talk about pure punk, they may have been the closest to that scene came to it, right? Maybe. On the other hand, who else got produced by Rick Ocasek and who else had a song covered by Bruce Springsteen? Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, Springsteen was a fan, no doubt about it. We've mentioned the Dead Boys a couple of times. What did you think of them? Well, I th- when the Dead Boys first arrived in New York, I thought they were, and I will use the pretentious French word, Aravistes. <laughs> I mean, I thought they were like, they were kind of the carbon copy band because they were sort of half the pistols and half the damned. They were kind of determined to outshine everybody else. And I mean, I recall seeing the drummer hit Stiv in the back of the head with a floor tom that laid him out cold on the floor and the four of them got up and walked off and mm. left him there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stiv Bader was always being knocked unconscious. Yeah, I also remember Stiv putting his head inside of, dr- of the bass drum on more than one occasion. Mm-hmm. And they were actually a pretty sincere band. I thought they were a little bit fake in the beginning. And I didn't really like all their songs. But on the other hand, you know, Sonic Reducer is a classic. Sonic Dream, Sonic Reducer, ain't no loser. Got my Sonic Reducer, ain't no loser. But I brought him up because it seems that at that point when the Dead Boys released that album in 77, Americans are already beginning to copy the Brits. The Dead Boys wouldn't have been the Dead Boys as they are on that first album if they hadn't been like, hey, those Sex Pistols, we were doing this three years ago in Cleveland of all places. We should mm-hmm. cash in on this and do a little bit of what they're doing. Oh, I agree. I agree. And, you know, and by, the, by 77, the Damned had actually come over and played at CB's, which was a big deal. And it was kind of like the intercontinental transfer system was starting to take place because obviously the Ramones had played, you know, in England in 76 and, you know, Patti Smith had been there and the impact was clearly being felt and it was being shipped back to us. The other thing I think that needs to be reemphasized, Ira, as as you said, all these bands sounded so different. There wasn't a sound. It was a, a diversity of sounds. And when you think about the chasm between what television sounded like with those, uh, you know, guitars going on those excursions, and to something like the Talking Heads, which was very R&B and funk influenced, was all of this stuff being accepted equally? Because one of the things that became part of that punk scene within short order was, you know, the rules that you had to play and look and sound a certain way. How accepted was this diverse lineup of bands in the New York City scene at that time? I don't think New York ever really had any rules. And I think if it did, that was the downfall of the scene because it was really a a freedom moment. I mean, bands were really expressing themselves, to quote the Bonzo Dog Band. They were not really self-conscious about playing a, a role. There was no set image. I mean, the Ramones, they certainly didn't invent the motorcycle jacket and the jeans. I mean, geez, that goes back, you know, 20 years. There was a lot of notice taken because so much was written about the New York scene. But I think the ways in which the bands and their images kind of exploded in a hundred different directions was perfectly acceptable. And I think, you know, one of the pieces of this puzzle that you're sort of overlooking at this point that you touched on with the Talking Heads was, you know, the whole sort of very hard funk side that James White 
mm. you know, and the contortions and those kinds of bands was bringing up, which was formalized a few years later on the new No New York album, which I think was 1980. Everybody kind of picked their own you know, shelf to live on. You know, they were going to be more radical or more extreme or less extreme or, you know, more musical or less competent or more violent or more funny or, you know. And I think there was a an explosion of diversity. It, it wasn't really like that after the, the start. I mean, I think in England, that Petri dish mutated much faster. The British scene became a joke by 1980, it had to be replaced by post-punks, you know, the Duran Durans and the Adam Ants and all those, you know, and the Spandau Ballets that were just taking the the spirit and completely rejecting the music, whereas the New York scene didn't really mutate that quickly. You know, it was like those same bands were still kind of poking around a few years later. The ones that got picked up and transferred to the national stage did so, and then everybody else kind of stayed behind. But it really wasn't until you get to like the mid-80s with like the hardcore matinees and stuff that the the routine and the, the archetype and the set sound really became formalized. So our perspective is looking back at 77. Some young kids being introduced to this music for the first time. Should she care? I mean, what's the legacy? How does it hold up? I think it totally holds up. I think, you know, there's an amazing amount of great music there. And I think those those albums display an enormous breadth of creativity, you know, and and also a kind of in-depth understanding of rock's past and its future. You get to see a bridge to everything that went before and a, a blueprint for a lot of what came after. You know, you really hear the freedom being expressed as a hundred great ideas being tried all at the same time. And not all of them work, but enough of them did. And I think those artifacts of that era really hold up. We have been talking to the great Ira Robbins of Trouser Press, New York historian, one of the rock critic inspirations to both me and Greg. Ira, thank you so much for coming on Sound Opinions. Oh, it's a pleasure talking to smart guys who actually care what they're talking about. (laughs) To close out our discussion on the New York punk scene of 77, we're going to play some of our favorite tracks from that era. Now, Jim, I think that Ira did a great job of talking about the Ramones as the quintessential punk band, but I think the thing that was most fascinating to me about New York in that era was the diversity of that scene, how many different bands fit under that punk umbrella. Bands, and you look back now and say, were they really punk? Were, you know, what were they exactly? And I think the Talking Heads uh, definitely fit that description. Three people, David Byrne, Chris Franz, Tina Weymouth, who met at the Rhode Island School of Design in Providence and then moved to New York in 75. Their first gig, in fact, as the Talking Heads, was opening for the Ramones at CBGB in 75. Two years later, kind of poetic that they added Jerry Harrison as the fourth member of the band. And I think Harrison is a key member of the Heads in some ways because he's the missing link. Uh, the missing link between the Talking Heads and the Velvet Underground, to whom they were often compared. Harrison played in that great Boston band, The Modern Lovers, with Jonathan Richmond in the early 70s. So he joined the band, and they really start to coalesce their sound. 
what made the Talking Heads unique was that they were kind of perceived as a punk band, but in fact, I think they were really a dance band in punk rock clothing. The whole idea of funk being a part of the punk scene, you know, disco was the dirty word at the time, right? Well, the Talking Heads loved disco. They loved R&B. They were huge fans of bands like Bohannon and Parliament Funkadelic, and they were bringing some of that into their music. So the rhythm section, can't say enough about the drumming that Chris France did. And Tina, who learned to play bass from Byrne, developed a style that was really ahead of its time in a lot of ways. She was playing a lot of lead bass on these tunes, carrying the melody, because Byrne's guitar was much more abstract. And then you had had Harrison in the middle adding background vocals and these kind of musicianly keyboard melodies that really brought some glue to the band's sound. Now, a lot of people describe their sound as kind of thin and nervous, and that debut album that they released in the fall of 77, Talking Heads 77, didn't really hint at the full power of this band as live performance. It did sort of emphasize their weirdness. But I think Byrne as a lyricist really conveys a different approach on this record that no other band could touch. That strain very from-the-throat style of singing that he had was very appropriate for the subject matter. You know, some people compared him to Tony Perkins, you know, in that Hitchcock movie Psycho, that sort of very repressed individual with a very dark underside. And in this song that I'm going to play from their debut album, he embodies that personality, this government bureaucrat who's who's saying how happy he is to be working this very mundane job in this very mundane setting and yet you sense there's a little darkness underneath the whole thing it's talking heads with don't worry about the government from 1977 on sound opinions Don't worry about the government from Talking Heads 77, a great choice to celebrate this year, Greg. I'm going to go with what I think, however, is the ultimate American punk anthem, Blank Generation by Richard Hell. You know, Richard Myers was born sort of to privilege, went to a Tony prep school in Delaware where he met a guy named Tom Miller, who would become Tom Verlaine. Richard Hell was in television round one, got kicked out because he couldn't really play. Mm. He did have a great song that they played for a while, though, Blank Generation. You know, from there, he went on to a group called The Heartbreakers with Johnny Thunders of the New York Dolls. He didn't seem to fit in anywhere in the New York punk scene, and there were drug problems and unreliability, all sorts of stuff. He did inspire hugely, no less a person than Malcolm McLaren, however, who said that he saw... I quote, this creature, Richard Hell, and it was definite 100% inspiration. He went back, he formed the Sex Pistols, he told them, write a song as good as Blank Generation, but make it your own. They came up with Pretty Vacant. 
Hell finally got his act together and put together a tremendous band in 77. Robert Quine on guitar, an incredible guitarist who spanned the entire history of rock and roll, from James Burton in the 50s through uh, the Velvets and Captain Beefheart, and brought in this jazz sensibility. No effects on his guitar, just chaotic dissonance, all with these notes. It came from a strangled, tortured place in his soul. In fact, the story is that when recording Blank Generation, he wasn't playing nasty enough on the solo, so Hell, during one take, went into the room and started strangling him, and that is the sound (laughs) you have on the recording. On the drums is a young man named Mark Bell, who would become better known as Marky Ramone. When Tommy Ramone left the bands, he he joined the Ramones. You know, you talked about Tina Weymouth's uh, incredibly inspirational role in the Talking Heads. Part of it was just so great to see a young woman up there. Mm -hmm. It said to so many people in America, I can do that. Ivan Julian, the final member of the Voidoids, Richard Hell's band, was a young African-American. He he played with great soul. He had a great sensibility. And there weren't a lot of, of people of color on the New York punk scene, but he was one and more would come as punk became post-punk. You know, that first Richard Hell and the Voidoids album, self-titled, is a classic, classic record. Blank Generation is a timeless song. It's pure wonderful punk rock joy on Sound Opinions. Here it is. I can take it or leave it each time. <laughs> Blank Generation from Richard Hell and the Voidoids on Sound Opinions. So, what were your impressions of punk in 1977? Did you ever catch a show at CBGB? Tell us at 888-859-1800. And when we return from a short break, we'll have a conversation with She Devils and hear a live performance. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Richard, are you gonna go out tonight? I am uncertain, I ain't feeling too right. But I rip up my shirt, watch the man in front. Yeah, I'm going out, out into sight. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. A few weeks ago, we did our best of 2017 episode, and number six on my list was the Montreal-based duo She Devils. 
And we saw them first at the South by Southwest Music Conference back in March, and uh, I was amazed. Here, here are these two people in She Devils being able to create an entire atmosphere. You know, I felt like I was in a Weimar Republic cabaret or something <laughs> like that when I saw them play. You know, I, I think it's no exaggeration to say they owned South by Southwest 2017. Kyle Yuka provides the instrumentation. He's using these weird samplers and, and all sorts of different electronic equipment. And Audrey Ann Boucher is on vocals. We were lucky enough to have them stop by our studio, the Jim and Kay Maybe studio, to talk with us and play some music. Audrey Ann Boucher and Kyle Yuka, welcome. Thank you. Oh, yeah, thanks. It's great to have you here. Uh, but the story begins in Montreal, what, three, four years ago, right? That's where you met. There's a great story. And I want you to clear this up, Kyle, that you were living with a bunch of, uh, it seemed like a little art collective. Yeah, I don't think any of us would have called it a collective necessarily. And I don't think any of us had that intention, but it was a cool space that was had cheap rent and you could just kind of like live in your own little world. Mm-hmm. Audrianne, the story goes that you stumbled across this uh, street busker who happened to be not strumming a guitar and singing folk songs, but you explain how the how this evolved yeah i guess yeah he had like these samplers and this mini amp and i was really curious because i just got into electronic music um because you were primarily a visual artist yeah yeah that's right not like professionally or anything like that mm-hmm. but and then yeah i guess he just like invited me to go to that place and that's where i met kyle well i think a lot of people are not yet familiar with she devils uh, self-titled debut album you're gonna play us some songs why don't we do a tune and okay. then I, I really want, am eager to talk to you about how the, the samples come together and how the songs come together. Sure. Okay, cool. What are we going to hear, Kyle? Uh, this one's called Hey Boy. Charming Sitting here waiting for 
devils hey boy here on sound opinions live at the jim and k maybe studio we're talking to kyle yuka and uh, audrey ann boucher i love that song what Thank a you. cool song Thanks. let's talk about two elements i mean there really are only two elements yeah. there's your electronics kyle and yeah. your vocals audrey ann um let's start with the vocals uh, to me the first time I heard that song and fell in love with it, th- there's a sort of element of Charlotte Gainsbourg or Francois Hardy, you know, those mm. early 60s ultra cool French chanteuse pop kind of thing. You know, they were sexy on their terms. Yeah. Right? Is that what you were trying to channel? Uh, maybe it wasn't necessarily intentional. I think kind of like having like French descent or whatever kind of like just mm-hmm. goes into it naturally. Being um, from Montreal. Yeah. Being French Canadian or Quebecois. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess just being like surrounded in that music, like when you were a kid and stuff. Yeah, definitely. Well, in that track we just heard, Hey Boy, I'm going to have that guitar riff or whatever that riff was stuck in my head for seven days, and that, mm. that'll be a cool thing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, where, where would something like that originate from? Where do you get that from? I'll just like hammer out stuff, like making pretty bad sounding like samples with, with the guitar that I have like at my space, and I'll have like a keyboard. Um, running through some effects, running into one, then I'll like, have a, a, a guitar running through like a loop station and some effects running into the other, and I just kind of will like layer and moving things around until they kind of like sit right. They but cl- we should, yeah. you know, since we're on radio, we should uh, tell people, I mean, there are no keys and on anything you're playing there. That's true, uh, yeah. Certainly no strings, right? Yeah, yeah. There's just knobs. Yeah. There's just knobs, and, and so it's, it's primarily sample-based music. Uh, yeah, well, I guess at this point it's like, it's meant to sound like that, but we're actually just sampling like ourselves. How does a, a She-Devil song begin? Uh, it just really starts in the, like, the soup of this. It's just kind of like blending like droney sounds with rhythms or just like keyboard sounds with like kind of more abstract textures or something. Mm. And I think kind of trying to marry that sort of more abstract world of sound to things that are kind of like more, uh, a bit more conventional or familiar, you know, just like uh, rhythms that sound kind of like, I don't know, like a, like a 60s song or something. So, so the words that go on top of that, to me, there's a double-edged sort of thing about a lot of your lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, Jim was referencing the French pop chanteuse kind of 
focus like, oh, it sounds very light and dreamy and kind of beautiful. And then you kind of think back, you know, there's, I almost felt threatened by a few of the lyrics. It was kind of like, oh, there's a, there's a dark, there's a darkness here, you know. She will cut you. She will cut you. She's got a switchblade. She will cut you. So does the collages uh, inspire that sort of thinking or are you thinking completely in a different space when you're making the words? Um, as like a woman these days, there's a lot of like internalized like anger, you know, like wanting revenge. <laughs> it's like a good way to like express it um, in in a in a harmless way rather than like going out there and like physically specify. There are things happening in the real world that are ticking you off and that you're sort of channeling into into these words. Just that, you know, it's it's hard to get respect as a woman, uh, or like harder, especially as an artist, especially as a musician like the feelings of like being a woman in the art world don't go into the songs it's more like I've had like a bad experience with a a, a person like a bad personal experience and then it's like I kind of just like make it more dramatic well it's and an the, attitude it's an attitude definitely and it's and it's not like you're screaming it's not these histrionics it's more this deadpan thing which makes it even more effective I think in some ways if you're paying attention you go whoa you know it's like I don't want, I want to mess with this person at all yeah well, that's that's how I am. <laughs> it's 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 all real. You're gonna play another song, right? Yeah. What were you gonna play? Uh, it's called "You Don't Know." A great tune from She Devils, the self-titled album. Tried to lend you a hand, but you won't take note of it. If you don't want to be my friend, you're screwed up, and I can't do anything. I can't do anything for you. Cause you Anything for you I won't do anything 
don't know from she devils the debut album self-titled audrey ann boucher and kyle yuka you're listening to sound opinions i am greg cott with jim dirigatis we're here in the studio with she devils um the sampling uh, i think a lot of people still are, have misguided notions about what that is you've already said kyle that you a lot of the instrumentation that you sample is stuff that you play I, mean, I think a lot of people, if they think about sampling, they think about a guy going through the racks in a record mm-hmm. store and, yeah. and picking up obscure records and then seeing to, you know, looking for that four-bar beat that they can you know, they can crib from. Totally. Why sample versus hey, I am already playing this stuff. Why why not be a band? Why not just layer my, you know, a drum machine and my guitar and uh, Audrey-Anne's voice and voila, we've got we've got a sound. Uh, yeah, I, I guess the, the weird thing is, is just that, like, I kind of, like, learned how to play music, like, sitting in front of, like, a couple samplers, if we were playing, like, our songs with, like, a drum kit and a guitar, like, it, it, it would just, it would just feel so, so different, like, it just wouldn't be the same thing at all. It's, like, this little chunk of sound, and you can just have it right where you want it, you know? Mm-hmm. And you can Plus have you, you can have carry a... all that stuff and pay those people. That too, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah for, for sure, for sure. You guys yeah. could travel in a Fiat across America. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's true, yeah. You know, whenever they introduce She Devils, and here's this band, and the quote that keeps popping up is uh, one of yours, Kyle. Apparently, uh, there's a fine line between paying homage to music history and defacing it. Mm-hmm. You've probably seen that more than a few times. Um, uh, yeah, a couple, a couple times. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess there's something about both me and Audrey that I find us to be like a little bit crude in in what we do. Um, the way that we were sort of like referencing the past and stuff, it just it just gave me an image of our band as, as being kind of like like a bit a bit primitive or kind of like rough around the edges. Yeah, like sort of like paying respect to it, but also kind of like turning it on its head a little bit. Mm-hmm. J- John Waters has been giving little talks or conferences or whatever, and one of the things he's always saying is that like this generation of artists is is too nice. Like, uh. we're, too, we're too nice to the past. <laughs> yeah, or too polished. I mean, even the album cover is kind of looks like a child did it in this burst of enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. Right, this is a naivete. Totally. Um, I, we we kind of glossed over this, but uh, when the band uh, started. Uh, calling yourself She Devils, very evocative. Um, where did the band's name come from? Um, we were looking for a band name. I, we thought that a girl gang would be a cool name to have uh, because of you know our attitude or whatever. Uh, so we looked at this list of girl gangs in films, <laughs> and we recognized that She Devils on Wheels, because we, we'd seen it before on a list of Quentin Tarantino's favorite movies, and just the name was the one that clicked the most. We just took She Devils, and it seemed like the coolest one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you were down with it. Uh, you were down with it, Kyle, being called a She Devil. Yeah, I didn't even flinch. Yeah. Like the other day, I had to like hitchhike because uh, our car ran out of gas, and I had to like hitchhike into the next town to get gas, and then I had wow. to hitchhike back with like the jerry can. And the and the guy that picked me up asked me like you know what I was doing. I said it was you know touring and stuff and what my band was called. And I was like, oh yeah, we're called She Devils. 
and then I got this like really weird reaction, but then I had to be like, oh yeah, but it's like it's fronted by like a girl singer. You've been running around. I don't know what to say. We've been talking to She Devils here on Sound Opinions. What a treat. Audrey Ann, Kyle, thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you guys. Yeah, it was so sweet. You can find video of She-Devils performing live at WBEZ Studios in Chicago at soundopinions.org. Greg, what's on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to go deep into the world of dragons, epic conquests, knights. We are going to explore fantasy in rock music. As always, Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Andrew Gill and Adam Yaffe helped us with our She-Devils session Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banasak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, Ayanna Contreras, and our intern, Isabella Martin. Is that my phone? Is that my phone? <laughs> <laughs> on Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey guys, um, this is Eric uh, from Northwest Indiana. We're talking about the punk scene from 1977 in England. And I always felt that um, 1015 on a Saturday night by The Cure uh, had uh, a punk vibe to it, even though I know um, Robert Smith um, evolved into more of a pop later. 1015 on a Saturday night. I was just curious what your feelings were on that, if he, if you felt that they had started out in that punk scene. And uh, thanks, appreciate it. Hello, my name is John, and I'm calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, regarding 1977, you know, it's, it's all very well that you're doing a multi-part punk special, but it's disappointing to me that you're not focusing on uh, the other music in 1977. As your guest mentioned, prog rock had not petered out by that year. Uh, you know, Yes did one of their best albums of Going for the One. Uh, Todd Rundgren with Utopia did what was probably the last really good album by that band, Raw. Uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer did the, the underrated Works album. By the way, yes, Todd Rundgren and Carl Palmer from that band are all touring this summer, so I, I think some focus on that would be, would be welcome on your show. Thank you. Hey guys, this is Rebecca from outside of Chicago. I just listened to your New Zealand episode, and maybe it's because my kids are sort of deep listening to Moana lately, but I want to say that in terms of the New Zealanders, um, musicians and artists and composers that created that Disney movie, uh, it's pretty intense. I especially recommend um, the Jermaine Clement. I don't know how to pronounce it. He's from uh, Flight of the Concords. He did a Disney homage as one of the best villains I've ever seen based on David Bowie. I highly recommend it. Thanks.
Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Ian from San Francisco. I'm calling about your recent New Zealand episode. Fabulous episode. I was in New Zealand in March this year and happened to be in Wellington during the amazing Cuba Dupa street festival they have there. And midnight on some night, there was this amazing noise coming from across the street. And it was this band from Wellington called the Mermaidens. Maybe a dumb name, but a great band, psychedelic noise trio, uh, two women, one man, just a great band. So hope some of your listeners can go seek out some of their great music. Thanks. Hi, this is Trey from Miami, Florida. I'm calling about the most recent episode um, in your review for Fleet Foxes. Jim, you got to start using the bell when you mention Father John Misty about how much you don't like it, because you do it almost as much as when you mention Brian Eno. Love the show. Thought the review was great. Just thought I'd mention that. I haven't hated all the same things as somebody else inside. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.